0: following jesus in the real world that's the name of our sermon series in first corinthians and besides the fact that the real world is really the only place you can follow jesus i chose this title for our first corinthians series because it's a letter to a church that was really struggling the church in corinth wasn't just struggling with its theology and its philosophy it was struggling in practice How do we follow Jesus in a world full of idols and temptations and customs and culture that present numerous ethical and moral dilemmas? Now, some of the issues that the Corinthians were dealing with are timeless and cross-cultural. For example, uh, sexual immorality, divisions in the church, favoritism, pride. Those things are still in abundance today in, in pretty much every church. Some other Corinthian issues were completely foreign to us, like hey, should we go and have uh, visit temple prostitutes? I hope that's foreign to you. We need to talk afterwards if that's an issue still. Uh, or, or issues like taking people to public, uh, court in public just to shame them on purpose. We don't really have that as a social construct anymore. But even in the examples that don't necessarily directly relate to us, we still learn valuable information about how to follow Jesus in a very real, very complicated, very fallen world. In every section of Paul's letter to the Corinthians, he encourages the church and therefore encourages us to be who we already are in Christ. In other words, to be who Jesus says you already are. Paul's message is not to condemn or to give a list of rules or to restrict people's lives. His message is simple. Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Savior. He's made you a new creation through faith in him. Now simply be who you are. Quarreling and playing favorites in church, that's not who you are. Fearful and ineffective in your life, that's not who you are. Lacking self-control, that's not who you are. Causing people in the church to stumble because of your abuse of your freedom. That's not who you are. Be who you are. A new creation. Dying to yourself so that you can truly live in Christ. Obedient to Jesus above all other allegiances. Boldness. Humility. shameless adopted into the family of God, image bearers of the living God. That's who you are, says Paul, over and over again. Be who you are. Now, this evening, we're going to pick up Paul's letter in the 11th chapter of his, of his letter. Um, it's where we left off before Lent in early February, And just prior to our chapter this evening, Paul has given counsel to the Corinthian church about whether or not they should eat food sacrificed to idols. And so, we're going to pick up just the end of chapter 10 for a little bit of context, and then we're going to focus on chapter 11, verses 1 through 16. Uh, Would you stand with me, please? So again, I'm starting in chapter 10, verse 31, just to grab the context. Whether then you eat or drink... Whatever you do, do all in the glory or to the glory of God. Give no offense either to the Jews or to the Greeks or to the church of God, just as I also please all people in all things, not seeking my own profit, but the profit of the many so that they may be saved. Don't leverage your freedom to hurt if it's going to hurt other people. And then Paul closes that thought with, be imitators of me, because that's what he does. Okay, now, here we go. Now I praise you, because you remember me in everything, and hold firmly to the traditions just as I delivered them to you. But I want you to understand that Christ is the head of every man, and the man is the head of a woman, and God is the head of Christ. Every man who has something on his head while praying or prophesying disgraces his head, But every woman who has her head uncovered while praying or prophesying disgraces her head, for she is one and the same as the woman whose head is shaved. For if a woman does not cover her head, let her also have her hair be cut off. But if it is disgraceful for a woman to have her hair cut off or her head shaved, let her cover her head. For a man ought not to have his head covered, since he is the image and glory of God, but the woman is the glory of man." For man does not originate from woman, but woman from man. For indeed, man was not created for woman's sake, but woman because of the man's sake. Therefore, the woman ought to have a symbol of her own authority on her head because of the angels. However, in the Lord, neither is woman independent from man, nor is man independent from woman. For as the woman originates from man, so also the man has his birth through a woman. And all things originate from God. Judge for yourselves then. Is it proper for a woman to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not even nature itself teach you that if a man has long hair it's dishonor to him, but if a woman has long hair it's a glory to her, for her hair is given to her for a covering? But if one is so inclined to be contentious, we have no other practice nor have the churches of God. O oh Lord, help us. <laughs> what on earth does this mean? what did it mean, what does it mean, would you help us to suspend our judgment and our preconceived notions so that we can hear what you have to say and help me to be nothing more than your mouthpiece this evening. Amen. You may be seated. My fourth grade daughter's science fair project this year was on optical illusions. Why does the brain perceive things in in a certain way? Why do some, some people see certain illusions while others don't? Charlotte Plogg uh, turned our family on to this video series, Brain Games. There's a little bit of research for this, but now we're so nerdy, we just watch it uh, for entertainment too. Uh, and in this Brain game series, scientists reveal some fascinating research about how the brain works, how we perceive reality. And one of the things I find interesting is just how many details we miss in life on average. We have two fairly large eyes, um, and we have fairly large field of vision but it is amazing how little we actually can focus in like your eye your the vast field of vision you have you can only focus on a minute. like five percent of that field of vision is in HD and everything else is highly pixelated such that our brains actually have to make up what is around us based on uh, similar settings that we've seen before In one experiment, there's a TV screen. So imagine a screen with a bunch of moving dots. Think black screen with fireflies, just kind of randomly going around. And in the middle of the screen are four footballs that just sit there like this, moving bees all around, four footballs. The instruction was to stare at one of those footballs while everything's moving around to stare at one of those footballs. And what happens is that if you stare at that one football for 20 seconds or more, the other three disappear. It's not that you can't see them anymore. It's that your brain erases them from reality. Now, if you shift your eyes over to the side real quick, you'll see all four footballs again. But your brain actually can only focus on the one and erases the rest of what's actually there. Oftentimes, when we read passages in the Bible, we focus on a few particular words or in a particular interpretation that alters the way we see the whole world passage 1 Corinthians 11:2 through 16 is no different as soon as i read that passage many of you probably assumed that this passage is primarily about women and their place in the church now you either thought a uh, that women it's about women being subject to men's authority or b you had already made up your mind that the bible doesn't really teach that and so whatever details in there that say Uh, women submit to uh, men's authority, I'm not going to look at them because, no, this passage doesn't represent the whole of the Bible. We always come to a text, no matter what it is, with a preconceived notion about how things really are. What we want to do, though, as people of the book is to confess that we've been conditioned by previous teaching, we've been conditioned by our culture, and then... As best we can, we come in with eyes wide open and say, Lord, help us to receive what the text actually says. In this case, we could choose to try and understand Paul and admit that we don't have an idea what he's talking about in several circumstances in this passage. And that's what I am going to attempt to do in this sermon. Paul begins this passage, and if you have your Bibles, just follow right along. He begins with a word of praise for the church. In that they hold firmly to the traditions of the church as they were passed down. The traditions refer to the core of the gospel of Jesus. The most important news that Paul has to share is that Jesus is Lord, that he's Savior, that he's King, that he rescued you, and that he will make all things new. In light of the core of the gospel, Paul will then begin addressing yet another Corinthian issue that has been distracting them from the centrality of the gospel of Jesus. He sets out with a message about headship, and already we have our work cut out for us. What in the heck does the head mean? There are three options in interpreting the Greek word kephale, or head, it could mean, one, a literal head, like, this is my kafale. That makes absolutely no sense in this passage, because that would mean that Jesus is actually not a man or God. He is a head, and he is the head of every single man, which makes me think of the 90s comedy show, The Head Detective in Living Color. If you don't know what that is, you're better off. If you do, just I just leave you with that. Isn't that strange? Okay. So it can't be that Jesus is a literal head because he's not, he's Jesus. The second way that you could read kephale is the minority view, and that's that it's a metaphor for being in charge of or having authority over, as in Nathaniel Wilson is the head of Flying Colors Painting Company. The problem is that the Greek word kephale is almost never used in that way, not in classical Greek or New Testament Greek. When head is used to mean authority, we either see the word exousia, which means authority with kephale, which we don't in this passage, or we see the word arche, which means chief or ruler or head of authority. The third option for head is to see it as a metaphor, meaning the source of. Jesus is the source of the first man because Colossians tells us that all things were made uh, through and for Jesus. So Jesus was there at creation, created Adam. And out of the side of Adam came Eve. Adam was the source of Eve. In Hebrew, the word for head is Rosh. So maybe you're familiar with the term Rosh Hashanah, right? It's the Jewish New Year. Rosh Hashanah means the head of the year. We don't think that Rosh Hashanah has authority over the other days of the year, right? It's the source. It's, from, it's the day from which the year begins. All the other days come out of Rosh Hashanah. So in this context, Paul is establishing that all things originate in Christ, our head or our source. Christ is the source of man Man, the original source of woman, and God is the source of Christ, which, by the way, doesn't mean that, that Jesus never existed until God, like, created him. He's the source of Christ, which is the Greek word for Messiah. God is the one who sent his ever-existing son, Jesus, to be the Messiah, to fill that role. Okay, so that's just an aside. So Paul sets out to establish that Christ is our head, our source. And then, actually, he doesn't even talk about women first, he talks about men first, and praying and prophesying in public Christian worship. We know this primarily, that men and women were praying and prophesying in public because of the larger context of chapter 11, which we'll get to next week but also because praying and prophesying, or prophesying was not something that people did in private. It was a, it's a ministry for public worship. Prophesying isn't some weird thing where somebody's eyes roll in the back of their head and they become this oracle of a nameless, faceless God. Prophesying takes multiple forms, including speaking a word from God in a, to a, a, a current cultural situation, speaking a word from God about the state of the church, Sometimes the church needs to hear a a, a word from God about things that they're doing well or things that, that we need to be convicted of. Prophesying means speaking a word from God to encourage the church, and I could go on with other aspects of that word, but the common theme here is that prophesying is speaking a word from God, usually in the form of Scripture, or at least in line with Scripture, for the building up, conviction, teaching, or encouragement of the congregation. In many settings, preaching and prophecy go hand in hand. Now, clearly, in this passage, both men and women were doing this in public worship. There's lots of different things people were doing in public worship that Paul disagreed with. And he simply said, stop. Stop it. Like, he literally says, stop sinning to the church. He says flee immorality. He says stop stealing and start working with your hands. Stop quarreling. Strive for unity. My point is that Paul is quite capable of saying stop it if he wants something stopped in the church. If praying and prophesying in public for men and or women was something that Paul thought was wrong and wanted to stop, he could have just said it right here, but he didn't. And that wouldn't have made any sense anyway, since he had several women leaders in the churches that he planted. The church in Philippi met at Lydia's house. She was the pastor or the head of that church. Paul stayed with her many times over the years, bringing his leadership team there as he's passing through, staying at Lydia's house because she was in charge of that church Phoebe was the leader of the Corinthian church, one of the branches there. Kenneth Bailey says of Priscilla, you know, Priscilla and Aquila, that Priscilla was a professor of theology who, along with her husband, taught the famous preacher Apollos the ways of Jesus. There are other examples as well, but clearly, as a general rule for Paul, the issue is not with praying or prophesying in church, and the issue for Paul isn't the gender of the person praying or prophesying in church. The issue for Paul is how people were praying and prophesying in church. Paul begins by confronting the men. Every man who has something on his head while praying or prophesying disgraces his head, which, as we saw earlier, means it's disgracing Jesus. Now, what does that mean? Does it really matter if you and I pray something with a hat or a cover or something on top of our head, guys? I mean, does it really... Do you think that God is somehow offended or cannot hear us if we pray with something on our head? Well, that's what many of us have been taught, is it not? In fact, if I were to say, let us pray, and I put a trucker hat on or whatever kind of hat there's a certain number of us who, maybe from a certain generation or raised in a certain background, who would be offended. Like, you can't pray with your head covered. Why do we think that? Well, partly it's because we've been taught that this passage teaches that, but the other reason, and I would say mostly it's uh, cultural conditioning. That's mainly a Western thing that we don't pray with hats on, and it comes from the 1800s when men would take hats off when formally addressing someone of higher rank or being kindly to a lady. We remove our hats when we hear the national anthem at a ball game. That's the right thing to do. I still teach my kids that. In the military, well, we were big on hats. You weren't supposed to. You had to wear your cap, your cover, when you're outside. But when you go inside a military installation, it comes off. When you're in the galley of a ship, it comes off. It's just a respect thing. What's the big deal about men covering their heads in this passage? Well, it has to do with some very clear cultural reasons. Many of the men who converted to Christianity in Corinth weren't previously Jewish, some of them were, but many of them were pagans. And prior to following Jesus, they worshipped any number of Greek or Roman gods and goddesses. And in pagan worship of that sort, certain men of high standing would put their togas, or, or the loose part of their toga, over their head when praying. And the reason they did that in pagan worship was because it was a status symbol. The people that covered their heads in pagan worship when they prayed, it was a statement of saying, I outrank everyone. And some of these men, when they became Christians, were bringing that tradition into the church. And Paul's point is, look, our source, your source, men, is Christ. And rather than claiming his rights as the guy in charge, Jesus emptied himself and became Nothing. He is the God who washes feet. He is the God who hangs with sinners and women and children and lepers. He's the God who gave his life in order to rescue us. And he's the same God who teaches us that the first will be last and the last will be first. So when these so-called leaders in the church are emulating their pagan counterparts by covering their heads in worship, it's a way of saying, Look at me. I'm so important. I outrank you. And Paul is saying, you disgrace your head when you do this. You disgrace Christ himself. The church is no place for celebrity culture. And I said this before, but if I ever get my own parking spot that says Pastor Chris on it, fire me. Okay? The church is no place for celebrity culture. That's the opposite of Jesus, and so covering the head for the men was a way of saying, I'm special, I'm, I outrank you, and Paul's saying, uh-uh, we're not bringing that tradition into the church. It's distracting, it takes us away from the core of the message. Now, to the women. If the men were supposed to pray with uncovered heads, the women were supposed to pray with covered heads. Now, what's the difference? There are at least two things at play in this, language and culture. Let's begin with culture, that's fun. In the first century Corinth, as well in the rest of the Roman Empire, there's a vast double standard, as exists in much of the world, between married men and married women. On the one hand, ask any Roman or Mediterranean person in the first century, what is the most important social institution on the planet? They would say, without hesitation, the family is the most important thing. So whenever you watch a mob movie, that's why they're all so loyal, because it comes out of that tradition. And so... The family being the most important unit, loyalty to the family was utmost of importance. But within the family, this is the crazy double standard men of high standing could and often would have extramarital affairs. Here is the rule on the one hand, <clears throat> the men could have extramarital affairs as long as the woman had no standing. So a man of nobility who was married could legally have sexual encounters with a woman who was a slave or a foreigner and not a Roman citizen, or he could legally have sexual encounters with a high-class prostitute. You can guess what women could do in this system. Nothing. Nothing. In fact, Caesar Augustus made a law that said if a woman committed adultery, she must be divorced by her husband, which would shame her and make her destitute. She would then be shaved, her head would be shaved, and she would be paraded in public naked to shame her. Failure of the husband to divorce his wife if she was caught in adultery would bring legal charges against him. He had to divorce her. I mean, do you see the double standard? It's insane. It's insane. Now, in reality, though, women were beginning to revolt, and around the time Paul was writing the Corinthians, actually 50 years earlier, there's a movement called the New Roman Women. It, this is so fun to nerd out on this stuff, because I got to read about a dozen statements describing these New Roman Women from Plutarch and all kinds of other extra-biblical sources, and here's the deal with these, with these wives. These wives of noblemen begin to have secret sexual encounters of their own with younger men, and their distinctive mark was to go out with heads uncovered, because when you got married in this culture, you covered your head when you went in public. It was what you did to mark yourself as married, be like wearing a ring, okay? Okay? So ever you see the sleaze balls when you're at the bar with your friends and there's the guy with the tan line, right? But hey, where's your ring? Same thing. So these women were going out with their heads uncovered. And that says, I'm available. Okay. Cicero wrote of one such woman who had an affair with a man named Silas, who is 10 years her younger. He writes, She was the daughter of one of Rome's noblest families, claiming the sexual freedom of a woman of no social standing to lose and making no effort to conceal her behavior A woman not just noble, but notorious. Scandalous. So, culturally, to be in public without one's head covered meant that you were available. Now, that's the cultural piece. Now for the language piece. Let's tie this all together. There are a few ways that you can say female in Greek. Girls before the marriable age of 14 to 16 were referred to as Pice, not pies, pice, like P-A-I-S. See if you can do that diphthong together. Girls or boys, for that matter, before a marryable age would not be allowed to teach in public, would not be allowed or required to cover their heads anyway. So Paul is not talking about young females, about the head covering thing in this passage. Widows were referred to as kera. They would not wear head coverings anyway because they're not married anymore. And Paul doesn't use the word kera here in this passage. So there's no reason to expect that widows, of which there were many, by the way, in this time period, think how many people died young, and it was usually the men who went off to war and died young. Lots of widows in the first century. So people before marriable age, not referred to in this passage. Widows, not referred to in this passage and most young women of marriable age were married off between the ages of 15 to 20, and the word for betrothed or engaged woman was parthenos, and Paul doesn't use that word in this passage. That leaves one word. Gune. Say gune. You said woman, but you also said wife. Since only wives had to cover their heads in public anyway, And since there are other options Paul could have used to describe, if he wanted to say all women for all time, he didn't do that. So most likely, like I'm talking 95% sure, what Paul is talking about here about women covering their head in worship were wives who were married to men, whether in the church or outside the church. That kind of changes how you see this passage, doesn't it? If they were influenced by the new Roman women and if they were in a public worship gathering with their husbands and their heads were uncovered, they were basically saying, I'm available. Now, even if they weren't trying to communicate that, you can see how it might be a distraction to a very traditional culture like that one. I mean, imagine a married woman. Jennifer is going to be preaching on May 1st, so she's a married woman. Uh, what if she came up here and, uh, I don't know, let's embarrass her, like she's in a bikini. Now, that is great for all the guys, sorry, Chad, and, uh, and well within her right to do, I mean, we know she's a faithful married woman, she could totally do that, that is within her right, so Jesus doesn't look at that and say, well, I don't love you anymore, I mean, she could do that, but that would probably really embarrass Chad, and probably make him all have all kinds of feelings. And let's face it, I mean, for most of us, it would be somewhat of a distraction, okay? So a married woman in that setting coming up without her head covered to pray or prophecy is basically, you know, what you're thinking there is all, all kinds of bad things, and you're definitely, probably not able to focus on the gospel or the actual words of God that are come, supposed to be coming out of her mouth. That's the issue with the head covering. Now, Paul addresses these cultural issues, and then he takes it a step further by going biblical. And this is one of the most misinterpreted passages on this, in this section. Stick with me, though. If we follow the logic, I think we're going to see a circular chain of thought that leads us to the source, which is God. Okay. Paul says that a man ought not cover his head. Remember in Corinth, um, that meant to exalt yourself above other people. He shouldn't cover his head because he's made in the image and glory of God. In fact, Genesis 1 says that men and women are made in the glory of God, the image and glory of God. The glory, or the woman, is the glory of man. Now listen, here's how the argument has gone for some. That men have authority over women because he was first. See, there's God, who's the source, and then there's man, and then there's woman, there's Adam, see, and then there's Eve. And because of this this logic of priority, people have come to the conclusion that man has authority over women. But that logic just doesn't stand if you actually play it out. Because if that were the case, it would be God first, and then the next one who is further back than man is the formless void. And the formless void would have authority over human beings. And then the plants would, and the stars, sun, and moon, and, and the animals, and the fish, and the birds would all have authority over man, which is exactly the opposite, actually, of what the Bible says, that we actually have authority over the animal. So that, that logic of woman came after man and therefore she's subordinate to man ha- makes no sense if you actually play it, play it out. What the text actually says is that the woman was made for literally for the sake of man. Why? Because he had no suitable helper. He was alone and it wasn't good for man to be alone, says Genesis 2. Man was somehow lacking, and so God created woman. In Genesis 2, the woman is referred to as an Ezer, and that doesn't sound like a very nice term, but it actually is a great term. Ezer means strong support in Hebrew. And God himself is referred to as an easer over and over again in the Psalms when he comes to rescue Israel as her strong support. So woman is given not to serve man, but to be his very capable support. And just to drive the point home, Paul writes, in the Lord, neither is woman independent of man, nor man independent of woman. For as the woman originates from the man, so also, see how the cycle goes, you know your biology, right? So man, I come from a woman, and so do you guys, right? And everybody comes from God. So you see how it ends up as God is the source, the head, But you're probably asking, what does it mean then that a woman ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels? (laughs) Well, the easy part of that sentence is the authority part. The grammar is so clear. The authority is the woman's authority to either cover her head or uncover her head, just like it's Jennifer's authority to wear a bikini in a couple weeks or not, but we know what her answer is going to be. Paul will close his whole argument with a, pl- with a plea to propriety. Basically, you're free to choose uh, to do as you choose. You have authority over your own head, but seriously, for the unity of the church and apparently for the angels, I urge you to cover your noggin. Okay. But what about these angels? I mean, nobody knows. I'm totally serious with you. Like, I've read a lot on this topic. Nobody knows. And thankfully, really, the answer to that question doesn't really change the big, the main idea of this passage. But just because I know you're curious people like me, let me give you the three most viable options for what this means. And really, there's only two of these three that are super viable. Okay, first, in other places, Paul implies that angels are present whenever and wherever the church gathers for worship. So that's pretty theologically correct. In fact, we believe that when we're here today and we're singing and right now that angels are kind of watching us and in some way participating with us. And we don't talk about that a lot, but that's kind of one of the things that the church over time has believed. And Paul seems to imply, for example, in Ephesians chapter three, um, the manifold wisdom of God is displayed, is put on display through the church to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places, the, the, the heavenly hosts, okay? So, Along this line of reasoning, wives causing scandal in the church for not covering their heads would be offensive to these angels who are joining us in worship. So that's one theory, Second, some have seen a reference to Genesis 6, where some of the angels supposedly took human consorts and produced supernatural offspring. The uncovered wives may be communicating to said angels that they are available and that these angels may lust after these, these wonderful new Roman women. Now, the problem with that interpretation is that you're interpreting, interpreting a very obscure text about angels and head coverings with an even more obscure text from Genesis 6, and that's always bad exegesis and hermeneutics, so um, I don't recommend that one, okay? But third, and this one's intriguing, the word for angel, angelos, is also translated as messenger, It's translated as messenger quite a bit in the New Testament, actually. And we know from Paul's other letters that sometimes the government or Jewish synagogues would send spies or messengers to report back about what Christians were doing in their worship services. They were looking for ways to discredit the Christians or even shut them down by accusing them of illegal activity. Now, in this context, if these messengers reported back that Christian worship encouraged the new Roman woman... It would definitely give legal precedence under Augustus and other emperors to shut the church down. So Paul could say, hey, cover up because of the messengers, because we don't want this report getting back. You don't represent, you few women that aren't covering your head, you don't represent the whole church. And you could bring this whole thing crashing down because of your, um, you know, being a butt. Okay. I just said that. So, what is the point of all of this instruction from Paul? It's not primarily a, a text of theology of gender. It's not primarily exactly how a worship service should go. It definitely isn't a timeless teaching about what we should do with our heads in 21st century Bellingham. Like, the new Roman woman really isn't a thing that I know of around here. Um, And by putting a hat on, I don't think I'm exalting myself above you. I'm still not going to do it because I feel funny because I've been raised a certain way. But just, it really has no bearing. I think that Paul's biggest point is, don't miss the message. The message is about Jesus. That Jesus saves, that Jesus rules. The message is not primarily, the gospel of Jesus is not primarily about inner peace, or women's roles, or what to wear on your head. The message of Jesus is not primarily political, or how long your hair should be, or what type of worship songs we should sing in church. It might have bearing on all of those things, but it's not the primary message. The primary message is Jesus, the one who made us and became one of us and died for us and rose and now reigns over us. The message is the offer of new life in Jesus that makes all other allegiances and grasping after our own rights mere distractions from the gospel. (laughs) Let us not be distracted from the center of the gospel. Pray with me. Lord, there are so many things that distract me and distract us from the core of the good news. Superficial things, stylistic things, personal opinions, cultural influence, so ingrained in how we think and how we perceive reality, I'm not even sure we can have an objective perspective. Help us, Holy Spirit, to continue to come back to true north to the gospel of Jesus. Help us, Holy Spirit, to be humble enough to say when we've been wrong, to hold our, our pet opinions with an open hand, to have wisdom to know what issues are certainly secondary issues and what issues are central to the gospel. Lord, I pray that you would unite us in that wisdom, that you would unite us in the gospel as a a church here in the lettered streets, that you would protect our unity, that you would help us to have deference for one another, to pursue hard after unity in Christ. Not the kind of unity that is the least common denominator, but the hard fought unity of mutual submission and good conversation and mining the scriptures in the power of the Spirit. We ask gigantic things of an amazing God. Have mercy on us. Amen.